We're returning this morning to our meditations in the prophecy of Isaiah and in the 42nd chapter. So turn there with me now, Isaiah 42, where we will read verses 1 through 13. Isaiah 42, 1 through 13. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Behold, they spring forth, or excuse me, before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Father, we pray today once again that like the coastlands described in this passage, we will wait expectantly to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray that you will speak and we pray that we will believe and that we will apply and that we will love what we hear and love the one about whom we hear, your servant. And we pray in his name. Amen. Behold my servant. That has been God's word to us in our brief sojourn in this chapter. Behold my servant. Behold my Messiah. Behold my Christ. Behold the Lord Jesus. And we have seen so far that this servant of the Lord is, verse 1, an upheld servant, a chosen servant, a delighted in servant, an anointed servant. And praise God, we saw at the end of verse 1 that Jesus is our servant as well. And then from verses 2 and 3, we saw marvelously that Christ is a gentle servant also. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick. He will not extinguish. And today, on this first Sunday of Missions Week, we're going to see that God's servant, Jesus, is also a servant to 
the nations as well. A servant to the nations. We already touched on this at the end of verse 1 when we noted three weeks ago or so when we noted that Christ is our servant and that we are among the nations in verse 1 whom he came to serve. So we talked about the nations, but on this missions week, we need to go back to this theme of Christ as the servant of the nations and think it out in more detail. And of course, we need to remember that we belong to only one of the many nations for whom God sent his son. God loves the nations, verse 1. God has purposes of grace, verse 4, for the coastlands. God's desire, verse 10, is for the end of the earth. So much so that he has sent his servant, his only begotten son, to speak his word to the coastlands, verse 4. To bring his light to the nations, verse 6. To lay down his life, Revelation 5, for the tribes and tongues and peoples. And one day to gather them all together around his throne, in worship and in praise. And that love of God for the nations, the peoples, the tongues, the tribes, that desire of God for the coastlands gives us the first of three main points today, namely God's passion for the nations. God's passion for the nations. Did you notice the pulsing of God's international heartbeat as we read through this passage? In verse 1, he is sending his servant to bring forth justice to the nations. To the nations. And the same idea is in view in verse 3 when it says of the servant, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, establishing justice in the earth. God cares about the nations. God is sending his servant to convert the nations. We, We said A couple of sermons back, this is a merciful kind of justice in verse 1 that converts the nations so that they begin to do justice to God with their lips and with their lives, that they begin to think justly about their maker. And so verse 1 speaks to God's passion, God's desire for the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then we hear the same thing in verse 4 where we are told about the Messiah that the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The coastlands, the far distant seashores, the remotest part of the earth are loved by God and are part of his plans. And then in verse 6, we're told that God is sending his Christ as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Christ was not coming just to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well, to the tribes, to the tongues, to the peoples, to the far-flung islands in verse 10, to the people of the wilderness in verse 11 and its cities, to the distant coastlands in verse 12, and in verse 10 again, to the end of the earth. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. God's passion for the nations. Specifically mentioned in verse 11 are the land of Qadar, where some of Ishmael's descendants lived on the Arabian Peninsula, 
and the city of Selah in ancient Edom, the nation of the descendants of Esau in what is now the land of Jordan. So that even these families of Ishmael and of Esau, who were once on the outside looking in at God's covenant, turn out to be among the objects of his desire, his love, his passion. Nations, coastlands, islands, wilderness, cities. God is the one, verse 5, who spread the peoples of the earth out so that they live in these various places. And God is the one also in verse 5 who has given breath since time immemorial to the people who live there. And this same God who has given breath to the nations, to the coastlands, to the wilderness, the islands and the cities, this same God in the person of his servant, Jesus, is going to send them spiritual light, verse 6, and spiritual sight, verse 7, and freedom as well there at the end of verse 7. I am the Lord, he says to his servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And so I tell you, nothing could be clearer from our text this morning than the fact that God has a passion for the nations, a saving passion for the peoples of the far-flung coastlands, islands, wildernesses, and cities. Indeed, let me just take those four descriptions that come out of our text today, coastlands, islands, wilderness, and cities. Let me just take those four geographical descriptors from Isaiah 42 and turn to Jason Mandrick's immensely helpful book, Operation World, and tell you about a few of those places and peoples for which God has such a desire in this passage. Think with me, first of all, about a coastland, a country like French Guiana. French Guiana is a little coastal nation. A few of you may know this. I didn't until I studied it, but French Guiana is a little coastal nation tucked onto the northeastern shore of South America, just above Brazil. And yet, in spite of its South American location, the official language, as you might guess from the name, is French, and not Spanish, and not Portuguese, since the country of French Guiana was once a French penal colony. And the population there is an amazing melting pot. 62% of the people are African-Caribbean, 15% European, 12% Asian, 5.5% South American. The diversity of French Guiana makes me think of what heaven will be like. And yet it is not heaven there because in point of fact, only about 4.5% of the population there are evangelical believers believers in the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, whereas about 75% of the people adhere to Roman Catholicism, which, as we said a few weeks ago, is expert at putting all sorts of intermediaries between the sinner and Jesus so that few Roman Catholics seem to find the Savior. And yet Isaiah 42 tells us that God has a passion that the French Guianese would find the Savior that they would worship at the Savior's feet. 
You might have not have known until the last few moments very much about French Guiana, and I knew nothing about the country until I prepared this message, but God was thinking about them, and God was passionate for them all the way back in Isaiah 42 and beyond. Verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. And then, along the lines of verse 11, let's think also about an island nation like Malta. Malta, in the Mediterranean Sea, you may remember, was visited by the Apostle Paul when he was shipwrecked there in the final two chapters of the book of Acts. And, says Operation World, Malta has long maintained a strong Christian identity. But that identity, even more strongly than in French Guiana, is heavily Roman Catholic. Quote, Malta has deeply Catholic sensibilities. The majority regularly attend Mass, and over 80% feel that their religion is important to them. However, not many Maltese enjoy a personal walk with the living Lord Jesus. Pray that their strong religious tradition may serve as a door into and not a barrier against greater commitment to the kingdom. Pray, in other words, that the Maltese might truly know God's servant and not just be content with a round of religious ceremonies. Only about 1.3% of Maltese are said to believe the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet, verse 10 reminds us that God has a passion that they would believe. Sing to the Lord a new song, sing his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them. And then what about a wilderness from there in verse 11? Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. Let me tell you about the wilderness of Mongolia, sandwiched between Russia and China. Mongolia is over twice the size of Texas, but it has only about three million people, just slightly more than greater Cincinnati. So think Wyoming or Montana in terms of population density across the entire country of Mongolia. And so that country, as you can imagine, is home to vast open spaces, vast wildernesses, including part of the great Gobi Desert. And among the sparse total population in this wilderness land, the Christians of Mongolia are themselves only a sparse subset. In 1989, says Operation World, there may have been as few as four total Christians. Not four churches, not four denominations, not 4,000 Christians, not 400 Christians. In 1989, there may have been as few as four Christians. But God, remember, has a passion, verse 11, that the wilderness would lift up its voice. And so, praise God, the gospel of his dear son is spreading in Mongolia rapidly so that from perhaps four believers in 1989, there were 33,000 plus by 2010. 
And on this Lord's day, they have been lifting their voices to God's servant, verse 11, just as we have done here, because God has a passion for the nations and for the wilderness places among them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. And what about those cities? I spoke to you a few weeks ago about the hot, dry, dusty city of Khartoum, the capital of the African nation of Sudan. Khartoum has a population of upwards of 5 million people, most of them Muslim, most of them poor, many of them living in shanty towns. And Christians are quite in the minority there. They're often harassed, says Operation World, with discriminatory laws and taxes, and sometimes with the destruction of their church buildings. And then just geographically, as I've seen the country from above while landing and laying over at its airport, just geographically, even the landscape of the city just breathes bleakness. It's dusty and brown everywhere, almost, that the eye can see. Khartoum is the kind of place which we might be tempted to call God-forsaken, and which we might expect to be one of the last places on planet Earth where we would hear shouts of joy, verse 11, to Christ, the King. And yet God cares for Khartoum, that vast city, verse 11, in the midst of a wilderness. God sent his servant to bring light and to receive praise even from this land of dust and darkness. And he will receive his praise there. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The, the settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. And so what have we been saying? From up and down this passage, we've noted God's passion for the nations, his love for the coastlands, for the islands, for the wildernesses, for the cities, and all the places and peoples in between. God loves the tribes and the tongues and the peoples and the nations of this planet, all of whom he has created. God's passion for the nations. But then we also need to see in the second place how God's passion for the nations overflows in God's purpose. For the nations. God's purpose for the nations. What does God say in these first 13 verses of Isaiah 42? What does God say that he is going to do for and among the nations? What is God's purpose for the nations? Well, as we already saw in verse 1 a few weeks back, he is sending his servant to them. He is sending his Christ to to them, his son, the Messiah, Jesus. Behold my servant, verse 1a. He, at the end of the verse, he, my servant, will bring forth justice to the nations. God's purpose for the nations is to send Jesus to them. And we see that even further as God speaks to his servant and says to him in verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Those are God's words to Christ, his servant. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And so what is God's purpose for the nations? Very simply, to send them Christ to send them a Savior, to send them Jesus, to be born in their world, 
to be born with their same human nature, to live without sin, and Revelation 5, 9, to purchase for God with his blood men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Christ did not come just for Israel, just for the Western world, just for America, just for people who look like you or me. God sent him as a light, verse 6, to the nations. God sent him to bring forth justice, verse 1, to the nations, to receive his praise, verse 10, from the end of the earth from the islands, and verse 12, in the coastlands. God's Son was given to all these places and to all these peoples and to every people and every language and every tribe on this earth. This is God's purpose for the nations, to send them His Son. And of course, in the incarnation and the sinless life of the Savior and the crucifixion and the resurrection, He has already done so. He has already sent His Son to us. And Christ has finished His work in all those ways. God has sent His Son to the nations. And yet God's purpose to send His servant, His Son, to the nations was not completed when Christ ascended in that cloud in Acts chapter 1 because Christ must still be sent to the nations as He comes to them in His Word in the gospel, in the good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And so God, we might say, on the one hand, has sent his servant to the nations in the flesh, in the incarnation, in the ministry and life of Jesus. He has sent his servant to the nations. But on the other hand, he still is sending his servant to the nations in the gospel, Ian Murray tells the story of a household servant girl chatting it up one day with a local shop owner about all the hubbub surrounding the impending visit to their district of a famous preacher of the gospel. Disgusted, this servant girl said to the shopkeeper, all this talk about Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, you'd think Jesus Christ himself were coming to our town. And she and the shopkeeper, I suppose, had a good chuckle about that. And a few days later, when the servant girl returned to the man's shop, the keeper asked her with a wry smile, Well, did Jesus Christ show up this weekend? And the young woman replied with a straight face, He did come. Jesus Christ came. Because, you see, He had come to her in His Word, preached by that man, and she had been converted. And Christ had come to her and to her village after all. And that's what's been happening in Mongolia. That's what we pray will happen in Khartoum and in French Guiana and in Malta and in Pleasant Ridge and in our homes that God would send his son to us just as he says in Isaiah 42 to bring about justice, verse 1, to open blind eyes, verse 7. And these things are part of God's purpose for the nation too. This justice, this opening of eyes. Not only is God's purpose to send his servant, but to send with his servant gifts, blessings to the nations. Just notice these blessings with me as we comb back through the verses. Christ comes bringing gifts with him. He comes, first of all, bringing, verse 1, justice to the nations. And as we said a few weeks ago, that justice that is spoken of here is not God's justice in punishing people's sins, 
But this is the justice, this is the way God works in people's hearts so that they begin to do justice to him. So that they begin to think justly about him. So that they begin to deal justly with him. God has sent his son into the world and he continues sending his son into the world by way of the gospel in order to bring repentance. In order to bring the nations to deal justly with their maker. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then, one of the upshots of this new found desire to deal justly with God is a longing among the peoples of the earth for his word, verse 4. An expectant waiting for his law, a desire to know what God says about how we should deal justly with him. Now, it's true that by nature the coastlands do not wait for God's law nor do any other sinners wait for God's law naturally. None of us, you and I included, waits expectantly to hear what God wants us to do and what God wants us to believe by nature. By nature, Romans 3, there is none who seeks for God. And so in missions and in local evangelism and in teaching the Bible to your children, God's law first comes to people who aren't waiting for it. Indeed, to people who don't naturally want it or look for it. But, when God does his saving work, as in verse 1, when, through the initially unsought-after word of God, God changes hearts, verse 1, so that people begin to desire to deal justly with him, then they want the Bible. Then those same people begin to wait expectantly for his law. They want to know what this God says because their hearts have been changed and drawn to him. And Christ has brought us this gift as well. Not only a desire for God's law, but he has also brought us God's law itself. Christ came into the world, among other reasons, to teach us, to give us God's law. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So the gift of repentance, the gift of God's law and a desire for it. And he also came, verse 6, to give us God's light. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Or as we have it earlier in this same book of Isaiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And this is just another way of describing the gifts that we've been discussing. God's light dawns on us so that our minds and our hearts are no longer shrouded in ignorance, no longer deceived by Satan's lies, no longer darkened against God, but they're changed so that we want to do God justice, so that we long for his word to tell us how to do God's justice. And Christ came to grant us this light, verse 6, to call men and women, boys and girls, out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we have the same concept with a different metaphor again in verse 7a, where we're told that God sent his servant Jesus to open blind eyes. Christ comes to the islands, to the coastlands, to the wilderness, to the great cities of the world with salve for blind eyes, with light for dark places, with the power to open hearts so that people who've spent their lives in blindness and darkness and error and hardness of heart might begin to think justly about him and to long to have his word in their hands. 
And with this light and with this sight and with this new way of thinking justly about God and with God's law in their hands, the nations are granted freedom. At the end of verse 7, the coastlands and the wildernesses need no longer remain enslaved to their various sinful practices. No, I will appoint you as a covenant, verse 6, to the people as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. There are many prisons in this world, dungeons that keep people in the dark. The prison of Roman Catholicism for so many people with all of its roadblocks to Christ, the dungeon of Islam, the dungeon of Western relativism, the dungeon of witchcraft or materialism or shame cultures, the dungeon of good old-fashioned American self-centeredness and acquisitiveness into which we are all born, and so many others. To be sure, some dungeons are more well-furnished than others, some of them so comfortably that you may be scarcely aware that you're in bondage while you sit there, but the darkness is real. And the separation from God is actual. And the idols that entertain us in the dungeons, these idols cannot hear or see or answer our cries if we should come to realize that we are entrapped. But Christ has come to deal with them as well, with the idols. Because God says in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And I think he's speaking along the same wavelength when he says in verse 13, The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Christ, the servant, in other words, has come into the world to make war on God's enemies, namely to make war on the idols, verse 8, with which God will not share his glory. The same idols that enslave the nations, the coastlands, the islands, the wildernesses, and the cities. Christ has come to cut them down. Now, different idols, of course, thrive in different places, but Christ has come in every place to chop them down like Gideon of old and to set men free from their domination. And your idols and mine, Western though they be, are included. The idols of pleasure and money and success and ease and food and drugs, and television, and sports, and sex, and certain relationships that we cling to in wrong ways, and the praise of men, having everything go our way, and on and on we could go listing the idols of our hearts. And so here's the picture in Isaiah 42 of the nations, whether they be Kadar, or Selah, or French Guiana, or Malta, or Mongolia, or Khartoum, or Cincinnati, or the peoples that we see in our own mirrors. The portrait of the nations is a portrait of people who, without God's servant, are unjust. Verse 1, they are in darkness. Verse 6, they are blind. Verse 7, they are enslaved. Verse 7, they are idolatrous. Verse 8, they are a pitiable people. Here are people whose lives are dusty and spiritually inhospitable as cartoon in the natural realm. And yet, 
rather than fleeing from such a place, rather than leaving our wilderness hearts to wither away of their own deadness and to wither away in God-forsakenness, God, rather, in the person of his servant, has come to the wilderness of the world to make it blossom. And in the gospel of that servant, Christ comes to the wilderness of individual hearts from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he makes the unjust just, and he makes the blind see, and he scatters the darkness with light, and he unlocks the dungeons, and he kicks over the idols so that men and women and boys and girls are free. We saw that in the video from Mozambique, did we not? And I say again that God's purpose is to do this, not just among us, but even in the remotest part of the earth. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So what is God's purpose for the nations? We've seen it as we've gone through the passage. Repentance, light, sight, freedom. All in the person of his servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And I say that he's doing this today, as some of you have read in newsletters from places like Morocco or China or Turkey or Mozambique. He's doing it in French Guiana and Malta, and Mongolia, and Khartoum, even though the statistics might say in those places that there are still so many walking in darkness. There are Christians there, gathered on this Lord's day, just like we are, waiting expectantly to be taught from God's law, just like I hope you have been. And God's purpose is to do the same, will be accomplished among every tribe, and every tongue, and every people, and every nation, as Getty and Townend have taught us to sing, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. That's God's purpose for the nations, that they be given Christ, and that in Christ they be given repentance, light, sight, and freedom. And his purpose also is that the nations would give him praise. And that brings us to our third and final point. We've thought about God's passion for the nations and God's purpose for the nations. And then we need also to consider God's praise from the nations. God's praise from the nations. God sent his servant into the world and he sends him into every corner of the world by means of the gospel so that in every distant island, And from every far-off coastland, and even from the end of the earth, verse 10, Father and Son and Spirit might have the praise that is due their names. God is working to to bring praise from people's hearts, verse 1, as they learn to think justly toward Him. He's working to woo praise also from people's lives as they wait for and begin to live by His law, verse 4. God wants people to change on the inside and on the out, in other words. He wants people to change in their hearts and in their lives. He wants praise from those places. And he wants this not only for our good, not only so that we might have light and freedom, but so that he might receive glory from our lives. 
so that he might receive the glory from us for which we were created and the praise for which we were redeemed. God is at work in the gospel at the ends of the earth, yes, for mankind's good, but also also for his own glory, for his own praise. And not only does he desire glory from our hearts and from our lives, but also from our lips. That's the theme now of verses 10 and 12. God's praise from the nations. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Put simply, God wants the islands of Malta to sing His praise. God wants the wilderness of Mongolia to throb with the songs of his glory. He wants the city of Khartoum to shout with joy. He wants the coastland of French Guiana to lift its voice to his son. And he desires this here too and among our neighbors who do not yet know Christ, but who might if we will speak to them the words of life. Wouldn't it throw your soul to see some lost relative or friend or neighbor who from outward appearances seem like they would never come to Christ, wouldn't it thrill your soul to find them here in these pews on a day like today, hearing in Christ alone and reading it from the screen for the first time in their lives, that song that we know so well. And as they hear it and as they read it and as they begin to try to sing it, you see on their faces that they realize that Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, whoever they are, have written exactly what they themselves have been coming to discover and see and believe and love about Jesus. And then to see them join in with moist eyes singing to their newfound king. This is God's purpose. Not just for that song, and not just in this place, but with a thousand other songs of his praise in a thousand other languages in 10,000 other places and more. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Verse 10, sing his praise from the end of the earth. That is why we have the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and why we support other missionaries as well. Missions exist, as John Piper says, and I've recently quoted to you, missions exist because worship doesn't. Or to put it the other way around, missions exist so that worship will exist too. Missions exist so that God will be praised in the nooks and crannies of the earth. Missions exist to bring Isaiah 42 into melodic fruition. So that the coastlands and the islands and all of them will sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. And I just ask you as we close today, don't you want to be a part of that? Don't you want to be in on God's good purpose of praise? Well, then let me encourage you, first of all, if you've never done so before, to come to this servant, Jesus, yourself. To prepare him room, as we're about to sing, yourself. To receive him yourself. 
and to receive yourself the light and the sight and the freedom that only He can bring. And if you do, you will find that having come to Christ, having come to the servant of Isaiah 42, you will not only be able to see, verse 7, but you will be able to sing, verses 10 through 12. And if you would trust Him even right now where you sit today, then in just a few moments you would sing joy to the world like you've never sung it before, no longer merely as a famous Christmas carol, the first verse of which you know by heart, but you would sing it as the happy cry of your own heart to and about a Savior who is very real indeed. Believe in the Lord Jesus today and you will not only hear about light and freedom and repentance and longing for God's Word, but you will know these blessings yourself and you'll be able to sing about them from the heart. And if you do know these blessings, if you do belong to Christ, if you are resting in Him, if you do already have His praise in your mouth, I hope that you will imbibe God's passion from Isaiah 42 that the Mongolians would know your Jesus also. That the people of Khartoum would have His light as well. That the Maltese would have His songs in their mouths. That the French Guianese would be free indeed. And that the day would hasten when Christ's praise would be sung among every last people group, language, and tribe in every corner and crevice of this planet. God's heart beats for the nations. Let yours pulse to the same rhythm. And then pray for those tribes and tongues who are yet unreached and give to Lottie Moon and otherwise so that missionaries might go to them with the words of life. And perhaps some of you will be called yourselves to go. And if you are, if God does send you out to the ends of the earth, he will not abandon you or fail you in your attempts to follow his passion and unfold his purpose and mine his praise from the end of the earth. For Christ will have the prize for which he died. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law.